Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another one of our weekly podcasts. My name is Richard. On behalf of Journey Community Church in Fontana, we thank you for tuning in. Last week, we heard from Pastor Brian as he continued our study through the book of Ephesians in verses 13 and 14. This week, Pastor Chris continues our study as we look at verses 15 through 23 of the book of Ephesians. Now, with all that said and done, let's go ahead and dive into this week's message with Pastor Chris. You know the saying, if it's too good to be true, it probably is. Well, our text this morning, it seems too good to be true, but it actually is. It's one of these texts that just knock you right off your feet and really show you how gracious God is, even beyond the comprehension of our finite minds. If you've been with us over the last month, you know that we spent three to four Sunday mornings teaching one sentence. Verses 3 through 14, 203 words in total equate to one sentence. And it's a sentence that is dense, rich, and jam-packed with theological truth. And Paul tells us some of the most amazing truths that apply to your life. That God has selected you before the foundations of the earth, verses three through five. That the son sacrificed for you, paying the ransom to bail you out, verses seven through 10. And that the spirit of God has sealed you so that you are going to make it to your destination. The spirit of God is like FedEx. It's getting God's package, God's investment from one place to the next safely and in the right manner. The spirit of God has sealed you for that day of glory. To put it in in story form, because that's how I learned the best. You and I were orphans. We uh, were a part of a family that was not a family. We were a people who had no God. We were a people who had no name, the Bible says. We just were. We were orphans, and the scripture tells us we were enslaved orphans. Our master is sin. We were under the bondage of sin, under the bondage of corruption. We were sold under sin, the New Testament tells us. We have nothing going for us, nothing good going on, and we have absolutely no hope. Because there we are on the slave market as an orphan with no one to claim us, and the wages of that sin market is death. And so there we are waiting to die when a new master comes along. Eyes full of love, hands gentle, a spirit full of compassion, and he laid his eyes on you, an orphan slave with nothing to offer, and he chose you. He says, I want that person to be with me. That's election. That's selection, verses three through five. The slave master tells the new owner, it comes with a price. That ransom is the price of your own son. So God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. 
And so the ransom, the price was paid at the sacrifice of God's own son, verses 7 through 12. But God didn't stop there. The shackles came off, and now we're free men. But we aren't free to just be a nobody. The Bible says it is for freedom Christ has set you free. He bought you and then he set you free as a free man. And then God took it one step further. Then he adopted you. An orphan slave now adopted and part as a a child, a family member of God himself. That's verses 3 through 14. That's one sentence. That's the gospel message. And in our text this morning, verses uh, 15 through 23, Paul begins to pray for the church. He prays for you and he prays for me. And the prayer is that you would be able to digest everything you just heard, that you would be able to comprehend in your mind how loving and gracious and how deep God's love for you really is. And so in our text this morning, we're going to look at Paul's prayer. And in Paul's prayer, he wants you to get one major point, that you know your worth in Christ, that you know your self-worth and your identity and all the resources that you have access to because of Jesus Christ. And so this prayer is a prayer for enlightenment, that you would have your minds open and your hearts warmed to the grace of God. So turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, and we're going to study verses 15 through 23. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. It's the first prayer of Paul in the book of Ephesians, and the first Uh, two verses, 15 and 16, deal with Paul's commendation to the church at Ephesus. He says this, for this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. Paul says, God has done so much for you and you have been saved and he's blessed you so much. And then he's praying and he says, for this reason too. And the reason is praise. Verse 14, I'm praising God for all he's done. And then verse 15, for this reason too, I'm also praising God. And the reason he's praising God is because the Ephesian church is rocking it. The church at Ephesus is alive it's well, it's thriving. They're having impact on their world. There are two things that the Ephesian church got right. What are they? Right there in verse 15. Two things the Ephesian church got right that all churches have to get right. Faith and love. They had faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That means they honored him. They were obedient to him. Jesus was, get it, the Lord of their life, making them bond servants. They were serving the Lord. They were honoring the Lord, and that manifested. It spilled over into loving one another. What did they do? They loved God, and they loved people. And Jesus says all of the law and the prophets hang on those two things. This church had it going on. Reminds me of a painting that was done in the Renaissance period. 
It's a, it's a picture of heaven and it's a picture of hell. And the people in heaven, the, the saved, they were happy. They, were, uh, they looked like they were bonding. They looked like they were enjoying a one another's company. While the people in the picture down in hell look sad and angry and irritated with one another. And in front of them sat a table with a big wooden spoon. And that big, big wooden spoon was too heavy for any individual to pick it up and feed themselves. So they had to work together in order to feed one another. The people in heaven were fat. The people in hell were starving because they hated one another. And you know, that picture is exactly how the Bible describes humanity and the world versus Christians and the Christian belief system. Christians are known or to be known for one thing, to be a loving, virtuous person. Jesus says, all men will know that you are mine by how you love one another. It's that working together and helping each other out that makes that profound impact. And Paul is writing to the church and saying, you guys are fantastic. Your faith in the Lord has been heard of. Your love to the saints has been recognized, but I want you to do one more thing. And that's in verse 17. I want you as Christians, Journey Community Church, to take it to the next level, to take your Christian walk to that next level phase. And in verse 17, this is why he prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of glory may give to you a spirit of wisdom and a spirit of revelation in the knowledge of him. What is Paul praying for the church? What is this prayer? I pray to God the Father that what? About what? The knowledge of him. What does Paul say? Church, the most important thing you need to get in your Christian walk is this. Know Jesus. Let me tell you about that word know. There's two things I want to point out. One is the preposition before the word that Paul uses, the knowledge of him. And that prepositions means a thorough knowledge. And the word he uses is an intimate relationship. And so Paul says, you guys are walking in the Lord. You guys are loving one another, but this is the next step. This is the next level that you would have an intimate, deep, thorough, committed, intimate love relationship with Jesus Christ. That's where it's at. You see, that that's when you arrived at a, as a Christian. It's not about what you get from God as far as uh, resources or heaven. It's about Jesus himself. It's about falling in love with the one who shed his blood for you. Jesus said this in, in John 17. He's there in the garden. He's praying to God the Father. And he says this, John 17, 3. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Philippians 3, 
Paul is writing to the church at Philippi. If you remember a few months back, we went through that book. So I will assume you guys all remember it. Paul is writing to the Philippians. And in the beginning of chapter three, he's, he's listing all his accomplishments, all his accolades, his ribbons, his trophies, his medals, all his accolades. I did this for God. I did this for God. I did this for God. And listen to what he says in Philippians 3, 7. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in the view of their surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them but rubbish. That word rubbish, by the way, is the bad word for poop so that I may gain Christ. It really is in Greek. He says, all my works are like number two. They mean nothing. What does he say? The only thing that matters is that I know the surpassing knowledge of him. And listen to what verse 10 says. He finishes by saying this, oh, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering so that I may be raised again with him. Paul says the end game is that I may know Jesus in the good times, in the hard times, in the bad times, and in the great times, that I would know him, that I would have a relationship with him, that I would be in love with him. And so that's Paul's prayer. And he gives us three things to know about your resources in your relationship with Jesus. And it's right there in verse 19. He says, three things, Christian, you have to know so that you can know the worth of your life, the resources you have that are at, uh, are expendable to you. And so that you can be victorious. Number one, know your hope. Number two, know your riches. Number three, know your power in Jesus Christ. Christians, number one, you have to know the hope that you have in Jesus. Verse 19 says, I'm sorry, verse 18. And I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. When we use hope in the world, it's almost like wishful thinking, is it not? It's like factless faith. You, I, I hope I get the job. I hope I win the lottery. I hope I meet the girl of my dreams. I hope I, it's just, it's, it's factless faith. We're just wishing upon a star. And that's really the idea of hope in the world. Biblical hope is the absolute assurance of coming good. The biblical definition for hope is guaranteed truth. So when we say we hope in Christ, it's not, well, I hope it works out. It's, I know it's going to work out. Therefore, my hope is there. It's a guaranteed. It's a 0.00% chance of it not coming through. When God says it, it's done. That's biblical hope. Paul says, I pray that you know your 
Now, hope is such a powerful thing. Hope is what gets a person out in the morning, up out of bed in the morning. Hope is what drives the, the uh, entrepreneur to quit their job and, and, and start something new. Hope is what keeps the rocky marriage together in hopes that things turn around. Hope drives people. Hope is powerful. Reminds me of a, of a self-made millionaire. His name was Mr. Lang. And he was invited to speak at a school there in East Harlem. It was notorious as one of the roughest schools in all the country. And they had one of the lowest graduation rates of anybody in the country. So this self-made millionaire, Mr. Lang, goes and he's he's pondering, what am I going to speak to a bunch of uh, Puerto Ricans and a bunch of black kids that I cannot associate with at all? So he kept his speech short. He went up and he said, school is important. Stay in school. I'll pay for your college. And he left it at that. Four years later, he was called back and he stood before the class again. And 90% of the class that he had spoke to had graduated and were going off to college. When one of the newspapers uh, interviewed one of the students that was going off to college, he said this, quote, it felt like I had purpose. It felt like there was something waiting for me, and that feeling was golden. The golden feeling the student was describing is hope. Without hope, you have nothing. You're hopeless. There's no purpose for moving. There's no purpose for getting up. There's no purpose for doing anything. You are hopeless. Paul says, Christian, know the hope that you have in Jesus Christ. It is a unfailing, unwavering, guaranteed hope of your calling. What is the calling? It's verses three through five. God seeing you in the slave market and him saying, I'm calling you out. It's the guaranteed absolute assurance that you have been purchased at that price. And so how does that help me? You know, I'm, I'm studying this. and How does that help me? How does that help Journey? How does that help the person listening online? How does that esoteric theological truth affect my daily life? And I think it affects us in three ways. Number one, it gives us security. When we have a guaranteed hope, there's security there. Number two, it gives us confidence. When we have a guaranteed hope, it gives us confidence. And then number three, it gives us optimism. It can help you and I in daily living, live an optimistic life. So number one, security. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but maybe in your Christian experience, you've sinned, you fell off, you went off the beaten path, you've done something that you knew was ungodly, you knew wasn't right, and you're remorseful. God can't forgive me. He's going to kick me out the kingdom. He's never going to allow me to be saved. I'm done. I'm, I'm worthless, yada, yada, yada. Maybe you've been there before. See, hope in your calling eradicates all of that because I know that God chose me before the foundations of the earth, knowing every sin I have committed, I am committing, and that I will commit. And he still looked at me, an orphan child, and said, you're mine. That brings security. In Romans chapter 8, it starts off in verse 27. And in Romans eight twenty-seven, 
I'm sorry, Romans 8, 29. Uh, he who he foreknew, these he predestined. And these he predestined, these he also justified. And those whom he justified, these he also glorified. And Paul is telling us this sweeping truth that we've learned in the beginning part of the book of Ephesians. And then he finishes it by saying this. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? If God chose you from eternity past and you're guaranteed to go on to glory in eternity future, who can be against you? Then he goes on, he says, can nakedness, can death, can peril, can height, nor death, any created thing, nothing can separate you from the Lord Jesus Christ and from the love of God. It's the hope that immediately translates into security. And so I know my God, I know my salvation, and the enemy no longer has a, a, a foot footing in my mind to proliferate a lie. It gives me also a confidence. I'm confident in the Lord and confident in the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Why would I be confident in the Lord Jesus Christ? Because my hope is guaranteed. So no matter what happens in my day-to-day life, it does not affect the end game. If I'm going through a divorce tomorrow, we better not be, by the way. If I'm going, if I'm going through a divorce tomorrow, it will break my heart. It will hurt me. I'll be devastated, but my hope doesn't change. If I lost a loved one tomorrow or today, it would hurt. It would be painful, but that does not change the hope of my calling. If your business shuts down tomorrow, that might be painful might cause you a lot of grief, but that does not change the hope of your calling. See, in biblical hope, which you have access to in Christ, you have a life that is full of security and a life full of confidence. And a confident Christian is a Christian who can walk out on faith and really change the world. The third and last thing that I think hope really gives to you and I is optimism. If Romans 8.28 is true, we know all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the what? The called. The called means every bad thing works for good. Every horrible situation works for good. Every good thing works for good. All things work for good and ultimately climaxes in eternity. So because of hope, Through my relationship with Jesus, I'm a secure, confident, and optimistic human being. It is that I can see, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me attitude. The cup half full attitude. It's all going to work out in the end attitude. Paul says, Christian, please get a hold of the truth that your hope and the calling of God is secure. Number two, he says, you have to know your riches. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? Paul says, too, you got to know your riches. You have to know how rich you are in Jesus Christ. If you don't get it, you're going to see yourself as poor. And you're going to believe the lie instead of the truth. The riches of your inheritance. How are we rich? Because we have been adopted. 
Who wants to read verse five for me? Can someone, Ephesians 1, verse five? Yes. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind of intention of his will. The praise and glory of his grace. God the Father adopted us into his family as sons and daughters. And because of that, we are reciprocate, uh, recipients of his inheritance. Listen to what our Lord says in um, Matthew chapter 25. In Matthew chapter 25, verse 31, Jesus is talking about judgment in the last day. And he says these words, Matthew 25, 31. But when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. So the sheep are you and I, God's elect. We are God's fold. Jesus is the good shepherd. He separates the sheep on the right. Anybody know what, why the right is so important? The right side is always a side of authority. So when you have a king, the king's hand would sit on the right side. It was a sign of authority. So God's people in the kingdom age, in the judgment period, will be put into a place of authority. And everybody else will be put onto the left. And then verse 34 says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. How long did it take God to create this incredible creation that we live in? Six days. And, and God has been preparing your inheritance since that time. Imagine how incredible our inheritance is going to be. What Jesus is saying in that text is this, you are the recipients of God's rich inheritance. Why? Not because you're smart or good looking, even though most of you are, <laughs> but because God is gracious and he set his affection upon you. And so you are rich in him. That's why Romans 8, 17 says, you are an heir of God and a co-heir of Christ. So if we're going to inherit from God riches, what are we inheriting? Flip over real fast to Hebrews chapter one. Hebrews chapter one, verse one. And verse two. The writer Hebrews says this, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son. And here's the kicker, whom he appointed heir of what? All things through whom also he made the world. So if Christ is going to inherit all things and you are a co-heir with Christ, 
what do you inherit? All things. That means you have a copyright on eternal love, eternal joy, eternal peace, eternal kindness, eternal grace, and you get to sit with God and rule with Christ forever and ever upon the throne. You went from an orphan slave to the ruler with the king. Paul says you got to see the riches that you have in Jesus, folks. You have to see it. What are the implications of that? Well, number one, contentment in this life. And number two, it guards against envy and coveting. See, when you know you're rich, it doesn't matter if you're broke as a joke in this life. It doesn't matter if you're, you're, you're sleeping on a couch in somebody else's studio apartment. It doesn't matter if you got you know, um, uh, overdraft charges, people blowing up your cell phone. It doesn't matter because that person in Christ is filthy rich and will inherit the new heaven and the new earth. It guards against not going after your neighbor's wife. It guards against not being envious of what other people have. Why? Because we know we have a pot of gold at the end of this rainbow. We know that at the end, the Christian wins, and there will be an inheritance which will take an eternity to go through. So Paul is saying, know your hope, know your riches, and then lastly, know your power, verse 19. And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ. So Paul uses four words to describe the power of God that you and I as Christians have access to. I'm going to say that one more time. Paul uses four words to describe God's power that the Christian has access to through Christ. The first word is power. And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? And that's a very common word for power in Greek. It's the Greek word dunamis. And it means a power that can be observed. Observable power. A power that can be felt. So God's creation is an example of this dunamis power because his creation, we can feel it, we can test it, we can, we can touch it, we can taste it. It's observable. The second word he uses is these are in accordance with the, and then the word working is another Greek word for power. Let's see if you can get the English word. The Greek word is energia. It's our word, energy. It's kinetic energy, and it means energy in motion. God's energetic working power is actively working in your life, is the thought process. Then he uses a third word to describe God's power that you have access to. The working of the, and then this Greek word is the Greek word kratos, and it means strength. If you play video games, you know there's a game called God of War. 
And the main character, his name is Kratos, or the, the Greek god Kratos, which is the personification of power. And that's what the word means, the personification of power. And this power is a power that overcomes. So this idea of power is a power that is meant with resistance, but it is powerful enough to then overcome. And the last word is the word might. And this is the fourth word he uses to describe God's power. And this is divine power, divine power. So Paul is saying, you through Christ have access to God's observable, energetic power that helps you overcome obstacles of life through his divine grace. That's the power the Christian has access to. What does that mean? That means that you and I don't have to lose a battle. A battle of depression, a battle against sin, a battle against whatever. It means you and I have the power to overcome. So my question is, if I have all this power, why in my Christian experience do I feel powerless? That's a question we have to ask ourselves. If God says you have transformative power that is moving and that can overcome all obstacles, it's divine given to you, and I feel powerless, then what is the problem? There was a, a professor at seminary, and he was it was a missions class, and he was teaching about his first missions trip. And he was saying how he went uh, overseas for two years. And when he arrived at his location, uh, the missionaries, the, the missionary he was replacing had given him a car. He said, here's the keys, you know, drive it as, as you see fit. Well, about a week into his, into his mission stint, the car stopped working. It only worked when they push started it. And so this missionary would have to go to all the locals and the children and the villagers, and he would always have to get a push start for him to go from village to village to village to village. Well, as two years went by and he was replaced by the next missionary, he handed over the keys and he said, hey, this car works, but you have to push start it. Well, the new missionary opened up the trunk or opened up the hood and looked inside and saw that the battery cables hadn't been connected right. So he connected the cables up and the car just fired right away. And then the professor looked at his class and he drew this point and he said, quote, I spent two years of unnecessary pain, both in my life and those around me, because I never tapped into the power that was available to me, end quote. And that is so much like the Christian who's struggling. Unnecessary pain because of sin, unnecessary pain because of strife, unnecessary pain to other people around you because sin doesn't only damage you, it damages all the people around you. And yet, I have all the power I need right here, right now. I'm just not tapping into it. Somebody didn't listen to the announcements. Shake my head. We have to tap in. How do you tap into God's power so that you have access to that Kratos power that overcomes the evil one, overcomes the world systems, and even overcomes the impulses of my own flesh? 
How do we do that? Two words. See, the world system and the world's thinking and philosophy is this, know thyself. Sociology, anthropology, um, psychology, self-help books, therapy, self-esteem, all of that, know thyself. That's the world's system. The kingdom system, the kingdom worldview is this, know Christ. How do I tap into the power? How do I connect the battery? How can I have overcoming power against sin and against the people that want to do me harm and uh, and uh, uh, against the White House and the Congress and the Senate who are passing things that are ungodly, anti-Christian, anti-Christ by nature? How do I overcome this? Know him. Spend time with him. That old saying, birds of a feather flock together. It means you are who you hang around with. If you spend time with Jesus, you talk to Jesus, you walk with Jesus, you're going to think like him, talk like him, act like him, do the things that he does. In that relationship lies all the power we need to succeed. It's all right there. We don't have to go find ourselves in the world. God already found us. We just need to commune with the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm going to wrap this up quickly. Then Paul goes on and says this incredible thing. The same power that you have access to is the very same power that raised Jesus from the dead and sent him off into heaven. So Paul's point is this. If you're a defeated Christian, it's not because of God. It's because of you. Because the very same power that allowed Christ to defeat death is the same power you have access to. So if things ain't working right, it's not from God's end. The the disconnected cable is not from heaven. It's down here on earth. He goes on and he says this, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand. Remember, the right hand is a sim- symbolic of what? authority and power seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come and he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all. Paul says, if you actually want to know that you actually have hope, riches, and power at your disposal, God proved it to you once and for all at the cross. Paul says in, in to the Corinthians that if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, our faith is dead. Our faith is futile. If a dead savior can't save himself, he can't save you. That's the point. But the resurrection from the dead proved all of God's promises. It proved the sacrifice stuck. It proved that the law was fulfilled. It proved that everything God has said and and did say has and will come true. Everything hinges around the resurrection. And because that happened, everything else falls right into line. So Paul says, you have the power. 
the same power that rose Christ from the dead, the same power which is going to subdue all of God's enemies and put them right at Christ's feet. And then he goes on and he says this, that we are Christ's body, he is the head, and where does Christ sit? On the throne. And we're his body, so where do you sit? On the throne, right? It's this idea that God has proven himself, proven his worth, and proven his word through the resurrection and ascension into heaven. And because of that, you are guaranteed what you've been promised. Hope, riches, and what's the last one? Starts with a P, ends with er, power, power to overcome. Is this not like unbelievable? You were an orphan slave and now you're at the hand of the king who you call your father, who you rule and reign for all eternity, and you did nothing to deserve it. Is this like not too good to be true? It's like mind-blowing, is it not? Or am I the only one here? All right, well, we're going to close this sermon out and we'll pray and then we'll get into next week's. Uh, let's pray. Father, we just uh, thank you, Lord, uh, for the truths, the dynamic truths of your word. God, if we really applied this life, uh, this sermon to our life, we would be a people who would be secure, confident, powerful, overcomers of sin, people who walk out by faith, optimistic, joy-filled. All of these things, God, are a direct result of our position and identity in Jesus Christ. It is my prayer, Lord, that we would be enlightened to these truths, that we would be so swept away by them that we can do nothing else but cry out in thanksgiving to God. Lord, I pray that journey would be like the early church at Ephesus, where we would be people of faith in Jesus that's observable, people that love one another that's observable, and people who spend time in relationship with their master, people who unite with Jesus on a daily basis. I pray, God, we can be those people. Help us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. And that is the end of this week's podcast. We thank you for joining us for another inspiring message. If you enjoyed this teaching, please take a moment and share it with others. If you're interested and would like to find out more information about our location, time of worship service, or even what ministries we offer, we encourage you to visit our Facebook page at Journey Community Church Fontana where you can find all that information and more. Again, on behalf of Journey Community Church in Fontana, we thank you for tuning in. Have a blessed week, and we'll see you here next time.